Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR at 554 AM dial. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio and, of course, Friday Breakfast. Well, good, uh, I hope you're having a good morning. So we're going to start the program with um, acknowledgement to country. Now, Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from the 3, 3CR studios in Smith Street, Collingwood, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and as with many of many other First Nations across the continent, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Okay, so we've got a, a jam-packed program for you today. We've got three interviews. Uh, normally we have two, but today we've got so many things to talk about. We've got Paul Adams, who is going to talk about the cuts in Victoria University. We've got David Giles talking about the homeless issues. He's also an anthropologist from Deakin University. And we have a, a guest from Pakistan who will, we will ring. Her name is Sonia Kadir. He's a fem- she's a feminist, and she was one of the founding members of the Feminist Collective, and she's a lawyer. So it's going to be interesting, and um, hope you'll stay tuned. So, Jacob, good morning. Yeah, good morning, <laughs> listeners. Um, so I guess um, this is a time where we can talk about what's kind of in what's been on the headlines recently. Like. I know. I have to do this. It, it's been funny in a way, but it's, it's almost satisfying for a lefty like me. It's about um, Sally McManus, who um, let fly today, uh, intentionally or, un- or unintentionally. And I'm going to read from a paper that I don't normally read, the Harold Rags Sun. Um, here we go. Uh, she was interviewed by the ABC on, on uh, 7.30, uh, not yesterday, the day before. And she said it might be illegal. She was asked in relation to the CFMEU, firstly, if she, the ACT will break from the CFMEU. And she said, of course not. There's no way we'll be doing that, she said. And then they asked it uh, about the, lo- the laws and, and the breaking of the laws. And her answer was it might be legal industrial action according to our current laws. And our current laws are wrong, she said. And only a lefty could make a statement like that. Mm. <laughs> and people with common sense would agree with that. How many yeah, no, everyday people go to the laws, and, the, the law courts, and find that the law is against them, and they need expensive lawyers to to argue the cases. And what's even better, which for me was the highlight of the interview, is she said that I believe in the rule of law when the law is fair and the law is right. But when it's unjust, I don't think there's a problem with breaking it. Mm. And that has sent a flurry of commentary. And, and you were saying something about um, Bill Shorten's response because um, I didn't get – I mean, well, I, oh, the Bill, media has gone mad about um, it. So Bill Shorten's response is that he rejects um, her views on breaking the law. Oh, yeah. And he basically said um, there's um, – he basically says – what does he say? He says, I just don't agree, um, is what Mr. Shorten um, said, um, told to Fairfax Media. And he stated, you know, if you don't like a law, if you think a law is unjust, use the democratic process to get it changed, he said. That's the great thing about living in a country like Australia, apparently. That's, well, he didn't say apparently, I just added that in. <laughs> um, that's what democracy is about. Um, we believe in changing bad laws, not breaking them. And so, basically, he's kind of Bill Shorten has essentially kind of distanced himself from the comments. And I think he's poised to become the next PM, he thinks. So so he doesn't want to appear to break the law. I think just one 
um, statement just I like to add about, um, you know, the funniest thing about the CFMU are always used as a boogeyman um, from the right about this. Yet, you know, the reality is um, the CFMU, when they have broken these laws and taken industrial action, it has always been on the basis of workers' safety. It mm-hmm. has always been on the basis of, you know, um, workers, you know, lives and well-being because... Um, in theory, from my understanding, it is actually legal, legal to, you know, to take industrial action, you know, over, you know, for pay rises and so on. But when it's, it, when it's any other issue outside that, technically it's legal, illegal, that's as far as I know. Or, Lali, you can... can no, that's nonsense. You know, the, the, the problem is the way trade unions have been behaving has evolved, unfortunately, to the right, mm. because of the affiliation to the ALP. Uh, their actions, have to not harm ALC, ALP's political positions anywhere. It's always that the ALP position gets taken first, the unions then purport to present it as if it's, it's their idea, and then the ALP comes behind them and says, oh, we support it. So it's all a game they play. And, mm. you know, it, it's all in ha- in-house, um, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours type activity. And this relationship has been going on for a very long time, for decades, mm. in fact. And it's, it's, it's not illegal for the union to do anything as long as it is within their right to protect themselves and their members. Mm. Why is it illegal to defend your members? You know, what doesn't matter what it is. Mm. And that's the job of a trade union. They mm. have support. They are there to support. The yeah, but it's, um, but the way the laws are kind of like set up is that it's not like a fundamental right for workers to take industrial action, you know, to go. Yeah, this is not a democracy. There's no free association, you know. You can't um, have a union meeting. I mean, I remember being arrested for having a union meeting in the 80s because the um, the hospital I was organizing, organizing had locked all the doors and I had to have a meeting to discuss the implementation of the new, then new award and they wouldn't, they locked all the rooms. So we had a meeting in the corridor. And then I was charged as trespass. Not by the hospital, but by the bloody local police station. Mm. So it's a question of, you know, um, understanding majority of the people today know the law is not just. There's no justice in law. The fact that you have to be able to afford an expensive lawyer. It's, if, if you have money, you can just about get away with anything. That, Im- that lack of equality is keenly felt by everybody. Not just a few people, and the unions are no exception. I think it's um, quite appropriate that um, in response to a lot of this, um, Sally McManus actually wrote a statement on behalf of the um, Australian, um, Australian Council of Australian Unions. Um, and, you know, she says here that, you know, Australia has been built by working people who have, who have had the courage to stand up to unfair and unjust rules and demand something better. Every single Australian benefits from superannuation, Medicare, the weekend and minimum wages. These were all won by our parents, grandparents and great-grandparents taking non-violent so-called illegal industrial action. Working people only take these measures when, when the issue is one of justice, like ensuring workers' safety on work sites, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work, or to uphold and to improve rights for working people. Without the Australian Union movement, our country would look like the US, where these types of rights are inaccurate or don't exist. There's rampant lawlessness in the workplaces of Australia, and this is occurring in the form of chronic underpayments of workers, exploitation of visa workers, and workplace practices that put the safety and lives of people at risk. 
Unfortunately, this is no longer on the fringes of our economy. It is now the business model for some corporations. This is what our government should be focusing on. Australian unions are committed to change the laws at work because they are no longer strong enough to guarantee and protect workers' rights. We'll do so through advocating changes to the law and rules that govern the rights. So that was her, basically her statement that she wrote. Hmm. I mean, the glaring fact is if someone dies at work because of employer negligence, they're only charged with manslaughter. Hmm. You know, and, and the fact is most employers cut corners to save money or increase their profit and they don't really care about workers as long as they just manage to do their job. They don't care how they do it. And that's been a fact for a long time. That is why we have the Health and Safety Act so we can protect the workers. Mm. But that has been weakened multiple times by various governments and consecutive conservative governments, including the ALP. So what you said is, is, is absolutely spot on. In fact, there's an article in Green Left Weekly today um, this week, it says MUA denied entry to uh, Barangaru site before work, work death. You know, it says here the Maritime Union of Australia said it was prevented from conducting a safety inspection at the construction site at the giant Barangaru project at Darling Harbour, where a 32-year-old worker was killed on the 1st of March. Tim McPherson, father of a young family, was crushed to death when a large metal beam fell on top of him at this site. Um, the MUA Sydney Deputy Secretary Paul Keating said that the attempt to inspect the site when his union was notified in November about concerns at the barge used at the site did not comply with maritime standards. So at the time I came down with another official to have a look at the barge to assess if it was up to uh, up to uh, sorry, at the barge to assist if it was up to assess if it was up to the maritime standard and to make sure that the operation was safe, he said. I was met with opposition from the contractor, McConnell Dowell, in assessing the site, after which um, they contacted the roads and maritime services to find out whether the the vessel was up to standard. So they they were denied full assessment of the site, and hence someone died. Mm. Now, is it illegal or legal? Where does it stand? Mm. You know, it's just nonsense. It's the, what you're saying is absolutely correct. And the fact that so many workers have died on the job and all this could have been prevented. And normally what happens when you bring up like, oh, workers are callous. They don't follow safety procedures. Well, it's your job to make sure the workers do follow safety procedures. You don't, you don't ha- wear a hat, hard hat. You don't go into building sites. Mm. People know that. It's a big, big well, sign. Well, there, there is... Yeah. Um, there is this kind of like um, myth that, you know, it's probably promoted by, you know, the establishment and the media. And, you know, even everyday working people, you know, have this assumption. And um, basically there's this sort of push against giving workers, empowering workers collective kind of rights because there's always this issue. Someone always brings up this question about, oh, yes, what if you give workers too much power and they ask for too much money? Like we're basically we've been... We've been so fooled by um, by the media that we're starting to sympathise. We start to have more empathy with the with the poor bosses. old bosses <laughs> than the workers themselves. When when the whole concept of workers having too much power is actually scary. Um, and it's also the use of system as well, you know. Um, the arbitration commission is the one that decided this penalty cuts recently, and guess who's suffering? Uh, like seventy five percent of the people disagree with the penalty cuts. Mm. 
uh, following several surveys. I mean, many of them have been done. Some say even up to 80%. Well, about that, I did over, I, I once, um, when that decision was passed, I overheard, and this is an example of what I was talking about, how, you know, how people, everyday people can be fooled. Um, there was this um, young woman who was, they were all, these young people, they're all quite, you know, they were angry about the penalty rate cuts. Yeah, and they started it should stuff. be. But then one of them said, oh, I can understand why it happened because small businesses uh, can't afford to pay their workers. And that's just sort of empathy of, empathy With the of, employers. of yeah. how, of how, you know, how the media, you know, brainwashes kids. Uh, like basically people are getting fooled by this kind of neoliberal individual psychology where, we're showing more sympathy for the right. Of course, the thing is, it's wrong anyway because small businesses aren't. It's not small businesses that are, you know, benefiting from this. It's the big end of town who, right. who are pushing. In fact, you, all you have to look at the rates of um, wage rise and the rates of profit. Profit has skyrocketed, whereas wages have not moved for the last 16 to 15, 16 to 18 years, according to the ABS. So, where is the you know, um, the rush for wage rises and bankrupting uh, business, small or big, for that matter. It's all nonsense. All right, listeners, um, we have um, Paul Adams on the line. Um, He is um, the branch president um, of the NTU at Victoria University, and um, he's here, we have him on the line here to talk about the cuts um, that are happening to Victoria University. Good morning, Paul. How you doing, Jacob? All right. So, what um, can you tell us about um, the, the um, sorry, I'm just a bit sick. The, um, cuts, the cuts at it here. Um, the cuts that are yeah. happening to Victoria University. Okay. So, we've got about 115 academic staff uh, who uh, will probably uh, lose um, their jobs in the next uh, couple of months, and we've recently had nine courses that have been cut, and they were cut at the start of the year. Um, uh, students had about uh, two weeks um, to consider changing courses and it was probably too late to do that. So um, the cuts have been um, fairly serious and we're expecting um, them to get, I suppose, uh, worse uh, in the next two months. Um, Paul Lalita here, who's co-hosting this program with Jacob. Um, just wondering, what, what is actually going on? Why are these cuts being implemented in the first place? Um it's I there's a couple of things happening. Essentially, what's happening is it's a kind of a spill and fill. They're getting rid of um, uh, one group of staff and trying to employ uh, another group of staff on lower conditions. Mm. Um, so they're looking to replace these 115 staff with um, uh, what we've been calling uh, the McDonald's approach to employment. They're looking at uh, low-entry academics um, uh, to take these jobs and also to be quite uh, teaching intensive. Uh, what this is going to mean probably for students um, is that um, the quality of education will deteriorate because there's going to be a lot less time for um, academic staff to help students outside the classroom. So effectively they're doing a swap of experienced staff with inexperienced staff. That's one factor. But the other factor you mentioned is the low quality of, of education. Does yep. that mean that they're going to be increasing class sizes and um, changing the actual content of the courses? What What's the story there? Um, yeah, um, certainly that. I think um, class sizes is something that's going to be looked at. But the other thing they're looking at um, is, uh, a common curriculum. Um, what they're establishing is something called a first-year college, 
Um, and so that will mean that, you know, uh, courses as diverse as music, engineering and um, arts will be put together with common courses. Um, we, we don't think that that's going to be particularly interesting or attractive for students because they'll be doing um, very, very similar curriculums across some of those courses. So um, yeah, it is going to have quite a big impact um, and it's kind of turning, I suppose, university education into a bit of a sausage machine. Um, I think most students, when they go to a university and, you know, whether they're studying music or whatever, they expect to study something in their discipline area. Um, and we, we don't think that's particularly helpful. The college is kind of being developed um, because the university argue that it will um, help with retention. But we've had some very successful programs in that area already, um, first-year champions who've been working with um, first-year students, and um, we don't actually think it's necessary and that they could probably do it within the existing structures and retain the sort of uh, subject diversity that, that's there to keep the courses attractive. Yeah. How about, this is a bit of a weird question, but um, this is something I've actually, um, in response to these cuts, um, this is kind of, and could be something that is a belief that might be held by some students, um, but I saw a comment by a student um, that basically, uh, along the lines, basically blamed the union um, for, for why these cuts are happening, um, because base, apparently, you know, the great um, NG staff um at universities are not accepting these sort of changes to online learning or something. What would your kind of response to that be? Um, well, I, I suppose, um, it's, you know, I mean, the issue about online learning is an interesting one. Um, mm. The um, courses that are actually going to be proposed are going to be much more teaching intensive, actually. So um, students are actually going to be spending a lot more time in the classroom. Um so it, it, it's it's probably um, not not going to necessarily support um, uh, more online learning. It's probably going to be less. Um, um, I, the other thing is, uh, you know, quite clearly this is a action that's been brought on by university management. It's been brought on uh, over the last few years. Um, essentially, uh, what university management are trying to do is to save money by moving staff onto lower conditions of employment. But what that means for students, uh, I suppose, in terms of the hex money that they're paying is that they're getting ripped off because they're actually getting uh, a lower quality education than they might might uh, ordinarily um, get. So, um, yeah, it, it that will have some big impacts for students. Um, you know, as far as the union's concerned, I suppose all we're trying to really do is maintain the conditions of education um, that, that were there and to um, support, uh, you know, a quality approach to education with both online and, uh, you know, learning in the classroom. Mm. Uh, but, you know, certainly reducing um, the quality of staffing and delivery is, is not going to um, achieve a good outcome for students. Yeah, mm. just a quick question just for um, the sake of listeners because I'm not sure if you mentioned, but what are the um, courses that are affected in terms of subjects? Okay, so at the moment we've had nine courses cut. Um, they're mainly in the creative writing and communication areas. We've had our uh, creative writing, professional writing uh, course, which is very popular, cut. We've had um, uh, our marketing communication course cut, our postgraduate courses in communications, visual arts, um, 
So those are the courses that are being cut. Um, and the uh, common curriculum that's being looked at is still being developed, and I believe won't be developed till next year. Uh, but I believe what they, they, they are look, looking at is um, having common curricula over the first year, uh, which looks transparently about um, to, uh, saving money rather than you know, having interesting discipline diversity for students. Hmm. So what has uh, the union done in relation to informing um, students about um, these disadvantages that are coming down the line? Yeah, we've been trying to talk to students in the classrooms, but there are some difficulties with, with that at the moment at VU because um, VU management uh, have been threatening staff um, should they uh, sort of talk more widely about this. Um, However, uh, one of the things that we're, we're doing to try and get the message out is that we're trying to build up a community campaign, which mm. uh, is involving um, uh, quite a lot of students. Um, it's called Friends of Victoria University. Um, it's a group that, that's been going really since about 2008 to support the university, and uh, the union's been working with that. Um, we had quite a, a large demonstration outside um, university council meeting on Tuesday, and there were students and members of the community participating in that, and we're looking also at maybe holding a public meeting. Um, but we will be trying to work uh, as closely as we can with students as well. Mm, there's so many questions I would ask you because online learning, um, I did online learning for my uh, master's at one time, and I hated it because you're stuck yeah. in a room on your own and you have no one to discuss issues with you. You you can't, you know, um, bounce off ideas and, and learn from each other. The group learning is not there unless it's completely structured. Um, and, and, you know, it, that isolation, I think, in the long run, contributes to mental health issues as well. That's my personal opinion, being a nurse and in the morning study, it just bothers yeah. me that you're, just, you're stuck in a room with a you know, computer in front of you. Uh, but that, that's, a, that's a bigger discussion. But the other problem I have is a similar um, cutting process took place at Sydney University where they were cut, cutting art courses. And I noticed that specifically that the cuts seem to fall on arts, creativity and so on, which are fundamental for human development as a whole. Um, you know, it, it just staggers me that they actually do this. How do the staff, I know, I know that the union's focused on, on staff wages and conditions, but it's a quality that, that I think then fails and fails to present a, a creative um, course that students want to learn. I mean, surely the students must must learn because I know in, in Sydney they occupied the building. They were going to close the building. Um, I don't know if you heard about that, but there was a, a long-running dispute then. I think they won some of those things. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see how your students react and that friends of um, VU go forward. But uh, what are your uh, actions? Because this, this news has not hit the mainstream media too much because it is, after all, a working-class area who they, who they don't really particularly care about that area from what we know. But what, is, what are the actions the NTU has um, so far uh, planned? Okay, so, I mean, at, at the moment we've been, you know, we've held the... Uh uh, protests with Friends of EU. We've been putting out media releases. I suppose the other thing we'll be looking to do, you know, is highlight the enormous money that's being wasted uh, by university management, um, com- you know, compared to the savings they say they're making. You know, I mean, there's, there's a large uh, or millions and millions of dollars which are currently being spent on lawyers, for example, um, to fight um, the NTU and to fight these actions, which yeah. could be put into um, 
uh, education. Uh, you know, Vice Chancellor also has been getting increases in his salary. Oh, that'll be right. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, despite I suppose all the claims about um, uh, you know budget uh, disasters and deficits and so on, I mean, essentially. What we've got is um, senior management that's really spending up big uh, while they're um, cutting education in the West, and we're certainly going to be um, raising those issues. We're going to also be working with students. Uh, we'll be having street stalls. Um, we'll be um, uh, having more protests and rallies. Um, you know, and we're we're really, I suppose, looking for support and people to come and support us from um, students and and the community body. Uh, so we'll be getting out there and banging the drum from big time. Hmm. So if people want to, to, to uh, lend their support to your campaign, is there a number they can ring or is there, does, does Friends of the EU have a particular phone number they can call? Um, that we do have uh, an email, um, which is just friendsofvu at optusnet.com.au and if you get on your Facebook page and uh, just search for Friends of EU, you'll find our Facebook page too. Oh, wonderful. Good for Facebook, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that that's it's, it's aggravating to listen to what VU is doing, and uh, given that we've got a new uh, ACTU president who is a bit more radical, hopefully the union will get more support. But traditionally, the NTU has been good for to staff. I mean, have they launched and won similar campaigns in the past? In your opinion? Yeah, look, I, 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 probably some of your listeners, listeners may or may not be familiar, but there has been, um, you know, some very uh, big changes in the university sector in the last, you know, five to ten years, mm. uh, and we have seen at a number of unis, uh, including at um, Victoria University, uh, you know, mass sackings. You know, Victoria yes. University, we've lost, I think, probably around about fifteen hundred staff, maybe more, um, mm. over you know last uh, five to six years. You mm. know, and this is because of the new move to marketised education. You know, relying yes. on. Um, fees for international students, so yes. universities tend to make up the shortfall by using their own staff as a bit of a quarry for finances to mm. do with less, um, so that's that's been going on for some time, um, and, uh, um, you know, the, the, that, that's had big effects, of course, in the classroom because, um, you know, it means there's less staff uh, for the number of students uh, that we, we have, so bigger, bigger classrooms. Um, it's also meant, you know, a bigger push also to charge students money for courses. NTU ran a very successful campaign uh, a few um, years ago around the, you know, $100,000 degrees, and we're quite proud of that. Um, and we, we did, um, you know, stop a lot of the cuts to education. So, you know, NTU's got a very proud tradition of Good. standing up and fighting for, for quality of education. I guess you, you're facing fairly um, hefty enemies because education is seen as one of the um, export commodities in Australia in a broader sense. So I guess these things are to be expected given the economic model that you mentioned um, and good for NTU for fighting back. And um, I hope we can support you in your ongoing struggle. If you have anything specific that's organized, please let us know so we can uh, let listeners know who would want to support you in that area. Yeah, no, we certainly will, and uh, we'll be calling for support and hoping that 3CR can support us. Absolutely, we are right behind you. (laughs) Thank you so much for being available this morning, David, and that's great. Keep the fight up. Good fight up. No worries. Thank you. Bye.
Thanks. So that's Paul Adams, who is the president of the NTU at Victoria University, fighting back against the cuts um, proposed by the university management. You're listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio. Um, just to give you a quick news story on um, from Green Left Weekly, um, Aboriginal housing company criticised for abandoning Aboriginal housing plan in New South Wales and Sydney. Um, the um, this is in the context of the Aboriginal housing company called a meeting um, to inform residents about its housing development on um, the Pellamore War Project at the block in Redfern on March 9th. Um, about 200 people packed um, the Redfern Community Centre to ask questions uh, of AHC about its plans to increase the size of the development. After just 25 minutes, um, AHC closed the meeting down as the audience loudly voiced its opposition to the radically enlarged plans. Um, the new plans um, to the, that the Pellingway project will grow from six to 16 storeys and provide accommodation for 522 students, up from 154. Um, there will be no new social ha- um, or Aboriginal housing, which remains at, at just 62 homes. The AHC plans to sell the newly built um, student housing to commercial operator um, ATR on a 99-year lease. AHC chairperson Alisa Tutuliu told the meeting the rent will be paid up front, allowing 62 affordable homes for Aboriginal people to be built at the same time as the rest of the development with no financial burden, no debt, no handling over of debt or legacy to the next generation. She said no part of the land would be sold. AHC general manager Lani Tutuliu then attempted to frame the or project as the realisation of the block's Aboriginal history. This is for the next generation to that for years we have enjoyed substandard housing, crime and mismanagement. There are people out there that deserve opportunity to be able to raise their children to be live in gold and to be able to live in good standard housing for Aboriginal people. Her, <clears throat> her comments were then met with shouts of you sold us out, we don't want it and you don't speak for black people. Our generation has been displaced, a young person, young woman shouted from the back of the hall. Um, Lael Monroe, the sole surviving member of the Group of Eight, who in 1972 were given a grant of 530000 from the Whitlam government that allowed the AHC to buy its first houses in Fredrin, spoke out against the new new plan despite the microphone being cut off. Your plan is not a reflection of our plan, he said before, describing the AHC's proposal as an Asian student, as an Asian student, um, Taj Mahal. This has become a motive, how it's been a motive situation for many, many years. Where here has it been mentioned about the Aboriginal homes, about the dreams of the founders of the place? It's not just Mount and Luther King who had a dream, there's Aboriginal people, black Australians who had a dream, and that dream's being thwarted, she said. Um, so basically, the meeting was due for it to run for nine minutes, but brought to an abrupt end. There's a lone female protester um, carrying a banner reading, Battle for Block Round 2, tried to enter the meeting. She was roughly shoved and pushed out of the room as shouting and heckling from the floor increased. Um, just to co- one core of thing about that article, um, this actually comes in the, comes from the context um, of a big, there was I think it was two years ago. There was a big um, struggle over over the Redfern tent um, developments in Redfern, where basically a tent embassy was formed as like a protest kind of site, um, and the demand was to basically have Aboriginal kind of social housing um, built in that area. And so basically, um, in response, um, as response to that, it seems like they're trying to develop. 
um, they go try, they're going to build some Aboriginal houses, but they're also going to be building these student houses for the for the benefit of developers, and which is why so many people, uh, especially the Aboriginal community, are completely outraged at um, the AHMC uh, Aboriginal Housing Company because it really does feel like they've sold them out to essentially developers, and they're not going with the full plan that they re- that they initially fought for. So there looks like there's going to be another ongoing campaign to make sure that you know public or social housing for Aboriginal people actually gets built instead of this student yeah. housing nonsense. Those two terms, social housing and public <coughs> housing, is completely different connotations to it. Yeah. Public housing is where you know the original term, the definition of that word was that you paid about 20-25% of your wages mm. um, which means you can have it, it, it actually was affordable housing now it's over 30% so what's happened is many companies and developing, development agencies have become involved in this whole area and if you are charged uh, just a little bit less than 80% you can actually be classified as a charity and you can uh, invest in social housing, which means you can actually uh, increase the rent paid by people to about 30-35%, which is unaffordable housing for majority of low-income um, families. So that's it's another component of this battle that's going on over there because, you know, to challenge Aboriginal people who are unemployed, I'm sure there are many who are employed as well, but if it's going to be a public housing project, then it should be a public housing project. Mm. But when they make it social housing, it makes rent mm. much higher. And, that, and that's it's, where and it's privatized. Yeah, it's, and that's why this that's why they're getting they're facing this pressure from developers because they're just only social housing. They're basically accepting that we build this big stu- um, block of student apartments in. Well, it's it's like as if they're doing you know um, social housing for the benefit of the people, but actually it's a profit making exercise by mm. developers, and that's a problem. So they can qualify t- to be called charitable organizations like Brotherhood or, or, or Sunrish Nami, even if even if they even if they are charging market eighty uh, percent of market value, which is still way too high for poor families. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yep. But let's move on to another article here. I just want a quick, um, just a quick one-minute, um, two-minute news story. Um, basically, um, the, the elections happened in um, the Netherlands. That can't be one minute, Jacob. And Netherlands, and, and <laughs> there were also elections in WA last weekend. But I, I just want to talk about just a quick result um, update in the Dutch elections. Um, but what's happened in the Dutch elections is um, there was a far-right kind of nationalist running um, called Gert, he was leading, he, I don't know what his party was called, but he's, the name of the leader is Gert Wilders. Um, unfortunately, he didn't get a majority and his vote actually wasn't that high. Same. But he's going to get 920 reps. Yeah. Um, but the, the bad news about the Netherlands elections is that most of the sort of centrist, sort of right-wing parties mm. won anyway. Yeah. Um, and they all overwhelmingly, they both support the racist policy, like the racist sort of immigration policies mm. anyway. Um, they're just not as extreme as Gert Wilders. Um, on a positive sort of note, the Greens party, they're called Green Left, won, um, increased their representation. They got, they now have 14 representation, representatives as opposed to four. However, some political analysis from the lands, especially of the left, of the far left, don't think um, the result is that much to celebrate because 
while the Greens have consistently opposed racism, they have not consistently opposed austerity, which is actually, you know, sowing the seeds for this kind of popular discontent that leads to the rise of the far right to begin with. Hmm. Um, so, Lily, you, you want Yeah, to but the thing is that they're not going to have one party majority. There, there's going to be a coalition government. There's, they're predicting, you know, four to five, um, parties that will have to make up a coalition. While the centre-right has won majority of the seats, um, they didn't have enough to form a government in their own right. So that's uh, you know, a space to be watched. It might take them several weeks before they work it out. And talking about the WA election, that was a landslide and you know, it's all, all news now really in a sense. But um, in a way, it's a pity that more independents didn't get uh, elected, and I'm not talking about Pauline Hans- uh, Hanson's party. Uh, it would have been good if um, more sensible or even Greens were elected because it gives that that government a bit more balance. At the moment, they've got open slather with, with the ALP, and ALP is, has, doesn't have the confidence of people, at least the Eastern States, mm-hmm. as much as um, you know they think they have yeah. because they have also been austerity-driven governments in most places. Just one positive news story that's come out of the WA, and really to give no credit to the Labor Party, but to give credit to the people-powered movements. Um, um, Since um, as soon as um, Labor got elected, um, they've made an announcement that they're ripping up the contracts for the Row 8. That was the base of the election campaign. But it it shows, you know, the matter the power of like you know the, the social power. movement of people yes. power people right. power has is what won that election right. not labor <laughs> you've got to listen to the people okay moving on um we've got a really uh, i think it's it's being cynical for for some people but <clears throat> well, sorry one of the articles is uh mike baird the ex chief minister of um new south wales has uh, been offered a job with nab and he's going to be earning $2 million. <laughs> and it just shows the corruption in those circles, mm. exposes these people to what they really are and what they're defending and who they are defending. They have never represented the working class. This guy obviously represented the ruling class and the rich, um, and that's why he's being offered such a, a cushy position. I mean, what banking skills does this man have? I'm not sure what his qualifications are as such, but... Um, he's going to be a customer officer. He's going to be a chief customer officer. In order to spend less time with uh, with the family, he's moved. Uh, but the former prime minister has enthusiastically accepted a job with NAB as chief customer officer. <laughs> the cynically, this is chases, right? They're writing this bit. They say in order to spend less time with the family, they're just being talking tongue in cheek. But. <clears throat> This is just just exposing exposing these people. I mean, all these cushy positions people are given. You know, if they if they don't do well in politics, they get to to become ambassadors to different countries or get mm. cushy positions like this. It's just sick. I wish it, I wish life was that easy for me. On someone who lives on a, a thirty thousand dollar a year salary. Yes, you know. I mean, it, it's. It's sickening, actually, when you think about how they exploit the poor and these buggers who are already rich go on to, to such highly paid positions. But anyway, moving on. Now, in Darwin, there was a story about West Papua, and we have we interviewed um, uh, a representative of the West Papuan uh, group here in relation to the struggles they've been going through. Um, and in West Papua, what happened was the there was a mural in the 
Darwin CBD with a poignant uh, symbol. It says you can't cover up genocide. And apparently the, in, uh, the owners of the building, uh, Randazzo Properties, have asked the artist to paint over it as a matter of urgency following the application of external pressures. And they don't define what the external pressures are. The Indonesian council in Darwin, uh, Andre Serega, said that while he had not been in contact with the wall's owner, he had written to the Northern Territory government in August Last year, uh, in 2015, to register his opposition to the depiction of the West Papuan flag, which was only flown for about 15 minutes um, 10 years ago, it was on the 1st of December. Now, um, so that's that battle's going on. So this this Indonesian sensitivity and the struggle of the West Papuan people for their independence goes on, and this is. Such a minor thing, and yet they make such a big fuss about it. It just shows how difficult it is for the West Papuans to to even raise the issue of their independence in Australia because of its support for West Papua and the genocide by Indonesia in West Papua. Okay, listeners, um, we have um, David um, Giles on the line. Um, he is a lecturer in anthropology, um, Deakin University member. Um, and um, Giles' research explores the relationships between the global economy, urban redevelopment and homelessness. And um, we are interviewing today because um, he's organising a forum um, that is happening tonight at 6 o'clock um, that is going to be uh, about a public... Uh, it's a public forum about the camping laws, um, well, basically the, the sh- um, laws that essentially criminalise homelessness in the CBD, in the CBD, they're supported by the Melbourne City Council, um, that, that, that we've been um, reporting about consistently on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, good morning, Giles. Good morning, how are you? Hi. Um, so what can you um, t- tell us about um, this public forum that's happening tonight? At the Multicultural Hub, by the way. Yeah, Multicultural yep. Hub, I forgot to mention yep, that. Yep, <coughs> that's right. So it's, uh, it's tonight at 6, from 6 to 8 at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub in the Purple Room. Uh, and, I mean, above all... Uh, I realised that the uh, the public discourse that's gone on around this has been really limited. You know, there's been you know there's been a, a bit of coverage uh, in the Age. There's been some shocking coverage in the Herald Sun, of course. <laughs> um, and you know, even where uh, even even in the places where journalists have tried to give it some uh, some attention, I know Tracy has done a good job at this. Uh, there still just hasn't been time to give it the depth that it really needs. What it, what it really needs is a uh, a complex, in-depth conversation because these are complex, in-depth sorts of issues. Mm. Uh, so we'll have a panel of uh, people who have a, a range of expertises about this. So we'll have people with lived experience of homelessness. We'll have uh, researchers like myself. Uh, we'll have people who work in the service and the advocacy sector. Uh, and we'll have a couple of people who've had... Uh, experience in Melbourne City Government uh, to talk about uh, what what's actually at stake, what are, what are the implications of this law uh, and what are the implications of homelessness more broadly and then we'll have a Q&A session afterwards uh, and then uh, we'll have laptops there so uh, people can have their say directly to the City Council. Uh, the public comment period ends today uh, mm. for this set of proposed bylaws. Uh, it ends at midnight tonight, so people can come, hear about the event, and then either go home and get on their computer and make a submission to the City Council, or they can make a submission at the event. Hmm. Well, one of the questions that always bothered me about this um, homelessness issue is that 
no one seems to really look at the broader aspects of homelessness. Homelessness doesn't occur in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. There's so many features, so many other things that impinge Mm. on on causing this homelessness in the face in the first place and mm-hmm. how it actually um presents itself and uh, how it's dealt with there's so many aspects mm-hmm. to it but I, I the curiosity for me is the the various aspects of the uh, causation of this phenomena yep. um has never been discussed not publicly not in the you know it, there's, a, there's a fair amount of research uh just to, to show what what else is connected to it. I mean, you, there's no there's, you, there's no easy uh, cause and effect, uh, but um, you know there's there's a lot of historiography that you know points out in the United States the relationship between uh, cutbacks to the public housing sector and mm. homelessness, mm. cutbacks to the welfare sector and homelessness. Uh, you know the, the rising cost of rent. And homelessness. You know, for example, uh, in American cities, there's a direct correlation between rent going up by $100 and homelessness going up by 15%. Mm. Uh, th- that sort of thing. We can point to systematic factors like that. Um, and uh, in Australia, you know, we uh, the you know in the US, it's one out of every hundred people is homeless at some point during the year. In Australia, it's only one out of every two hundred. You know, we're doing better, but not that much better, and we're in those large systematic ways, we're going down the same direction. Yeah. Well, Rent, rent's getting higher. Uh, the, the welfare support system is getting chipped away mm. uh, slowly. Mm. Public housing is getting chipped away slowly. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're creating the same systematic conditions. Yeah. Well, just one quick comment on that. One thing about, um, about that, that comparison of the statistics is that Australia's population is like, the, not even as big as the state of New York right. in, the, in the United States. So, mm. uh, Proportionally, it's larger, in other words. Yeah. Um, but one, um, just one question I want to ask you. Because, you know, it's interesting, just a comment, and you can respond to it, is, you know, it's interesting that you're organising this public forum and, you know, the Melbourne City Council has um, voted on these, um, by, on these, you know, laws, and mm-hmm. apparently they put them through a community consultation period, but, you mm-hmm. know, why hasn't Melbourne City Council organised a public forum on this? You know, that's a question that really needs to go. How, how come Robert Doyle, you know, isn't speaking to the public, that's right. you know, about this? You know, why it really kind of shows, you know, very far, that they really want to push this under the rug, even though they are putting it through a community consultation process, a great thing, um, but they really aren't putting, you know, that in practice. They're not organising a public forum that's to really have the deep engagement with the community. Well, uh, that's right, the... the the key word there is deep. You know, they've they've got the the public can, uh, public public submission period. Um, you know, so they are taking submissions, but they they haven't organised a space for the public to hear about it, to mm. learn about it. You know, the the public meeting on February seventh when they voted on the laws to begin with, because they have a sort of two part process. When they vote them in, they uh, they did have a period where people could speak on it, but they had a a limited number of people, and they can only speak for three minutes at a time. Sure. So, uh, it, it, I, I don't want to speculate about why uh, why they might not feel it necessary or valuable to have a more in-depth conversation like this. Uh, I'll leave that up for you know for you and your listeners to speculate. I, but 
uh, I, would, I do want to say that we invited Robert Doyle. We invited uh, all the members of the council who voted for this, uh, and they all politely declined. Mm-hmm. And we also invited the Victoria Police who asked for these powers, uh, specifically Graham Ashton, but mm. Victoria Chief of Police publicly mm. has said some actually quite, uh, quite uh, troubling and inaccurate things about homeless people and explicitly called for these powers. So we invited Graham Ashton to see if we could have a, you know, a civil conversation with him um, or a representative of Victoria Police, and they said, well, it's not our policy to comment on such matters, except that they have had press conferences conferences on this in the past. Mm, of course. Um, so we'll, all, we'll also be live-tweeting the event uh, so that people in the audience can live-tweet at Victoria Police, live tweet uh, at Robert Doyle, and you know, since they, uh, you know, the City Council simply said, you know, they, we'd like to be there, but we're too busy. Mm. Uh, so, so you can tweet at them and bring them in the, into the conversation anyway. Mm. Well, there has to be a broader discussion, and as you say, you have to have a look at all the other features and factors that that are involved in this issue. Mm-hmm. For a country that is about third wealthiest in, in the world. Homelessness shouldn't even be a factor in this country. Mm, absolutely. It's a you disgrace. Know, and, and uh, you know, Victoria once had a uh, public housing system that was the, uh, you know, the apple of the world's eye in many ways. Mm. Uh, you know, so it's, we, we ha- it, it can be done. We've done it. Mm. Uh, you know, it just takes the, the right, uh, the, the political will to spend the money. That's right. Yeah. And given that the, the Victorian government is uh, or, or seemingly uh, more progressive, um, those mm. don't seem to take this as seriously as it should. Mm. Well, I, I should add, I mean, I, I, I don't know that it, uh, uh, with political issues like this, I don't know that we can ever really point a finger and, and uh, pick certain people out, people out as, as evil or uncaring. I think... Uh, I think governments are always kind of under the thumb of larger economic forces. Oh, yes. Um, you know, and especially at the level of the city, cities like Melbourne are competing in a global economy uh, in which their their security, their economic security is always, always feels uh, shaky and always feels like it could change at any minute. The global economy, you know, has such, uh, such whims, uh, you know, that, money can pick up and move anywhere. And so I think there is a feeling on the part of uh, cities that they, um, you know, they're up against the wall and it's, you know, they, they need to create this world-class image for themselves. They need to attract the tourists. They need to attract the, um, uh, they need to attract business, uh, which could go anywhere now because the global, global economy is, uh, you know, more and more flexible. So, so, Homeless people lose out in that. Uh, you know, there's not... I mean, my feeling is that uh, rather than move the homeless people out of the city, we ought to offer re-education uh, to, uh, to the people who come so that they're not afraid of homelessness, so that they understand the issue and that... Um, uh, so that they, you know... Uh, so that they're, they're, not, um, they're not complaining to the city whenever they meet someone in the street. Uh, but, I, you know... One of the things looking at it is that this is not just something that's happening in Melbourne. This is something that's happening in cities around the world. That's it, right. It, 
it's a, a symptom of gentrification in a way. It's That's right. Any, any time you have, uh, you know, increasing poverty uh, and, you know, increasing poverty on the one hand and co- conflicts over specific spaces on the other. So any cities around the world are rapidly gentrifying as the whole global economy gets more unequal. Uh, and that, that the gentrification becomes a point of conflict uh, and then these laws become one of the ways that cities try to manage those conflicts. It's, it's, uh, a, it's a top-down approach where you use mm-hmm. uh, almost a violent means to hammer away at people who are less advantaged. But just listen mm. to your argument. Mm-hmm. There. My, my brain went in all, all different directions. But as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, if you don't want homelessness, prevent it. Mm. What, what the hell is going on here? You, know, you don't want homeless people on your streets because you want tourism and all the economic forces you're talking about uh, to be mm-hmm. affected. Then why don't you prevent it? That's a question I want to pose to these people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we the, the political will over the last 40 years to support people uh, who are poor is kind of, um, has dried up in many countries. You know, we, you sometimes use the word neoliberalism to describe the, this uh, constant regime of, of cutbacks and the vilification that poor people get in the process. You know, I'm thinking of Joe Hockey. Yes. <laughs> uh, calling people lifters and leaners. Scott Morrison. Um, <laughs> yeah. can go on, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and blaming people for being poor, essentially. And, and that translates into, into the kinds of cutbacks that we're seeing. But we also need the political will to tame the housing market. You know, the only thing that homeless people all have in common is that they can't afford to pay rent. That's right. Um, aside from that, there are an incredibly diverse re- set of reasons by why people might end up homeless. That's but, right. Um, yep. But rent goes up and up, and we need we need to have controls on that as well. There was a, a study, or it was actually on the news for a change, ABC, were talking about how mm-hmm. um, it costs $200 million um, to have these people homeless because they then it, it really presents all the other issues we, we sort of touched on uh, because mm. homeless people have health issues. A lot mm-hmm. of them have major mental health issues. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have other physical illnesses and they end up in hospital, which is going to cost a lot more than if they have been housed. Mm-hmm. And all these illnesses could have been prevented. They could have been part of the system that actually attends to those health um, mm-hmm. issues. And it, 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 it tried to address it, but it, not enough. It's, it's too, too little too late, especially mm-hmm. when they want to... Criminalized. I mean, you're being criminalized. You're a criminal because you're poor, as you mentioned. I think that is a statement about a society we live in, which is not positive. Yeah, that's true. That you know, that's true. I mean, it's when when the assumption is that what's good for business is good for everybody. Uh, then, yes. <laughs> if you are um, if you are not good for business, uh, then you, your existence is kind of marginalized, criminalized. You can be disposed of. Yeah, but on, on the other hand, too, I think it, it, in, in a way these laws discipline the bodies of the poor, and I, I mean discipline in that kind of like political sense. You know, it, you know, it, it 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 doesn't just make people go away, but it makes sure that they they can be here and they can't be there. You know, it moves people around in space. Mm. Um, you know, and so it, I mean the classic example is the uh, the workhouse from Victorian England, and thank God we're not as bad as that. Mm. Uh, but the, you know, in Victorian England, they had, they they did have charity, 
uh, but they made damn sure that everybody knew that there was a difference between good people, good homeless people and bad homeless people, yes. good poor people and bad poor people. And that the effect was to, to, to try and frighten uh, people into working as hard as possible to make to make poverty as scary as possible so that people would uh, would be better, a, a more manageable labour market. And as if they're not frightened of anyway, enough mm-hmm. anyway, having yeah. no income, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so the working houses were horrible places. Yes. Jacob, you can say something. Uh, well, actually, we're running a bit um, out That's of okay, time so. now. Um, mm. So, David, do you have any sort of like final comments? Because actually, there was so much I could say in response to what you just <laughs> said there. So we could maybe we could talk about the Salvation Army, actually. Yes. But that would probably be another five minutes. But unfortunately, we're running yeah, out yeah, of time now. Yeah, the role now. of charity in regulating, uh, not just helping, but actually disciplining and controlling <laughs> uh, poor populations is another long oh, conversation. God. Um, and I don't, I don't want to say anything specifically about Salvation no, Army, but there's, okay. <laughs> just a, there's a long history of that. Yes. Um, what, what I will say is just the, the, de- the details again. Uh, come to the uh, Melbourne Multicultural Hub tonight uh, from 6 to 8. Uh, we'll have uh, Richard Foster, who's an ex, uh, a former city council member, uh, Melanie Raymond, uh, from Youth Projects, and she's also on the Homelessness Advisory Council for the city. We'll have Megan, uh, Megan Fitzgerald from Fitzroy Legal Services. Uh, we'll have Spike from the Homeless Persons Union and from 3CR, and myself, and then Louise Johnson uh, from Deakin University will moderate the discussion. Uh, and come prepared to make a submission to the City Council if you haven't already. Hmm. Sounds excellent. Yep. Sounds very and, good. And, and we should thank you for... Um, organize such a forum to, to enable people to contribute to this very important discussion. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks, David. Yeah, well, thanks okay. for having okay. me. That's okay. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, listeners, um, it's, we're a bit overdue for it. Oh, two minutes past overdue. Um, <laughs> but we're now, you're now listening to, um, the activist calendar, um, from Green Left Weekly. Um, so, um, this Saturday, um, the, at the Immigration Museum, there'll be, st- um, stories from Detention Preview and Forum. They'll be at 10 a.m. at the Immigration Museum at 400 Flinders Street Centre. Um, city um, entry is free, but um, pl- um, they're advising that people please register. So you probably just have to search that up in Google to get the registration details. And it's organised by Teachers for Refugees. And it's also on Facebook. Now Sunday, 19th of March, there's a launch of Sue Bolton's who um, Molan office. She's a counsellor, and in, she has opened up a new office to to enable people to have conversations with her um, if they want to. And there will be a great launch. There's live music from Fergus McBride and Lewis uh, Reedy um, Croft, Crofts. Meal and bar available um, at 1 p.m. And the location is called Pepper Tree Place. It's on the corner of Urquhart Street and Sydney Road in Coburg. So you enter by Urquhart Street, and it's um, just a few minutes' walk from um, Bell Street. You can ring Sue if you need any further information. The number is 0413-377-978. And, of course, it's also available on Facebook. Right, so um, <coughs> there'll be a sort of a uh, campaign of rowing actions at Centrelink Debt Offices, protest Centrelink Dignity Not Debt, um, g- basically demanding that the Turnbull government abolish the robo-debt system. Um, these will basically be national actions where people will be volunteering to hand out leaflets and material outside Centrelink offices, and it will all be really sort of around the same time. 
Um, simply email dignitynotdept and we'll help you coordinate a store outside your local office. This is organised and you'll be put in touch with a local CPSU representative in order to receive mental uh, not printed materials. And it's um, organised by Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Again, it's on Facebook, yeah? Yep. Now, West Papua Office, um, they're having a tool and launch. And if you're interested, it's... Um, it's an encouragement to join the Rent Collective. As you know, they um, are raising money to keep the office going. Uh, the Jacob Rumbiak, the Foreign Affairs Minister, will host the tour. And West Papuans are always... Um, have always supported sustainable development, have thousands of years of experiences interacting with the natural environment, and they're building... They're trying to do that with the building. So the the uh, tours between 10 a.m. and 12 p.m., it's at 211, uh, it's sweet, 211, 838 Collins Street, and the tram that runs around, along Collins Street takes you directly to, to the spot. And the tour will be followed by lunch and it's yummy food. And you can ring Louise Byrne on 0424 745 uh, so the next um, thing, well, I, this is on the activist calendar, but there's no point because the tickets are sold out, but it was um, live readings of feminist text, Decolonising Feminism, Building Solidarity, and that is at um, 5.30 on Monday, March the 20th, at um, VU in the community. Yeah, but unfortunately, um, it's sold out, but um, you can follow the Facebook page for any um, other events that they might do, Loving Feminist Literature on Facebook. Okay, March 21st, on Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, um, 21st of March, there'll be a public meeting, Fighting for Women's Rights in Pakistan, featuring um, guest speaker Sonia Kadir, um, who is a human rights lawyer, founder of a feminist collective in Pakistan, and yet we're going to be interviewing her in three minutes, actually. Um, so they'll be at 6.30pm with meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, level 5 of 407 Swanson Street in the city. Okay, last announcement. March 22nd, or second last rather, there's a rally, Stop Attacks on Education and Welfare, 2pm, State Library, Swanson Street. And Thursday, March 30th, there's a book launch, Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. And we interviewed Alan Broughton, um, Broughton? I can't pronounce the name properly. And others will launch um, this book at the Residence Centre, which is at 5 level... Sorry, it's at the Multicultural Hub, Level 1, the Purple Room, um, 506 Elizabeth Street, um, opposite Big Market, and there'll be food available. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and there's also a book launch on the same day, another book launch, Repaying My Debt, um, memoirs by longtime uh, conservationist Jeff Mosley, 7 p.m., New International Bookshop. 54 Victoria Street, South Carlton. But before we go on, I just wanted to make an announcement um, important to 3CR. There's a community radio benefit, um, and we have got Ekranoplans, Winter Sun, BJ, Morizonkli. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it badly, but it's um, a, a benefit for... 3CR. It's on 30th of April, Sunday. Uh, doors, doors open at 1.30pm. It's at the Northcote Social Club, 301 High Street, Northcote. It's $10 pre-sale and more at the door um, if not sold out. So do um, show your support to the alternative uh, community radio and come and join us. might be fun.
Okay, let's move on to some Green Left Weekly news. And one of the things that I want to talk about is this squabble over renewable energy between South Australia and Turnbull. What do you think, Jacob? It's um, on what article is that from you reading? It's um, an article written by Zabedi Parks. And, um, you know, it's interesting because he says that generating electricity using renewable energy is now cheaper than using fossil fuels. Uh, But mining companies, banks and governments in Australia continue to invest significantly more in coal, oil, gas and wind and solar. And as as we know, you know, they have um, or they are considering uh, subsidizing the Adani coal mine to the tune of billion dollars while he stands to personally gain three billion dollars out of this project for him and his family. So. Um, Parks says a study of market forces shows Australia's big four banks, uh, and we know who they are, um, invested $10 billion in fossil fuel last year, 10 times more than any other investment in renew- renewable energy. Now, ANZ is the worst offender with a ratio of 14 to 1 ratio of investment in favor of fossil fuels. So notably, it is bankrolling the Adani Carmichael coal mine in Queensland. And governments and corporations often argue that fossil fuels cost less, uh, less and uh, less, and renewables lead to higher electricity prices. And this is false. In the past five years, the cost of solar has dropped by 80% and wind by one third. And this price drop expected to, is expected to continue as we have, as we, you know, on a daily basis, you see people uh, talking about batteries that can store um, energy more energy and for longer. And and we've seen the South, Australia, South Australian and um, the federal government uh, fight yesterday. It was all over the news and people would be quite delighted to see the two uh, fighting over this. But it seems the South Australian government has taken a positive move and a brave move to go it alone in a sense um, to increase renewable energy and to stabilize the uh, electricity, electricity or power supply to the state. And uh, Turnbull's talking about revamping the Snowy River project, and he hasn't released any details or costings or where, how it's going to be funded. In addition, it's going to take f- f- five to seven years before it's available, as Weatherall actually argued um, on, on media yesterday. So... It's really interesting how opposed to renewable the rich layer of this country are. And I think that the push comes from the four banks that have been funding this whole the, um, coal mines and um, you know, fossil fuel industry. And that's a problem. They don't want to lose money. And I would hate to see things spiral into or the, the too big to fail type situation. Mm-hmm. But I think the fight is on. And uh, a report by 350.org shows that Queensland alone, um, in Queensland alone, the latest renewable projects are leading to more than 2,200 jobs with government investments and 71.1 million. In contrast, Adani, at which the government is throwing 1 billion, is expected to deliver fewer than 1,500 jobs. Mm. So it's fossil fuels, it's not, and coal mines are not doing the population, the climate, or the government any favours, or the yeah. workers. It's just totally ludicrous. Well, the way but it's mainly because of the power of, of the people who are already in the establishment, like, you know, the corporations, like the fossil fuel CEOs, they have all this kind of lobbying power yes. over governments that 
Yeah, of course, they pay money to the election campaigns. What do you expect? It's just so blatant. Um, No one really brings it up as a major issue, but it's been discussed in different arenas. It's got to come come forth to to be... um, you know, clearly and honestly discuss. Uh, but the, thing, the problem is you never get honest discussion with, with, with politicians. You ask someone and they tell you something else. It's always a problem. Um, and it's interesting because in the wake of federal funding of Adani, the Australian Institute commissioned a poll of preference for government investments in renewable or coal infrastructure. 75% supported renewables. So the people of Australia are sensible enough to understand that renewables are viable, and they will be cheaper and less damaging to the environment, but they face the one percent. That's yeah. a reality. Well, and in response, you know, to this whole, you know, taking on the power of the one percent, the corporations, you know, the rich. Um, Zebedee basically writes that, you know, you know, the fossil fuel industry is, you know, it's a mechanism for extremely wealthy corporations with the help of their armies of lobbyists and media ownership to funnel money from the public coffers to themselves via government subsidies. Um, he, he says here that even if we increase our renewable energy generation, as long as there is money to be made from fossil fuels, they will be pursued. And then basically he says, you know, this leaves us only one choice. If we are serious about taking action on climate change and swiftly moving to 100% renewables, we need to take the banks and the energy sector into public ownership. They have shown that they will continue to invest and expand fossil fuel projects no matter the cost of the planet. In doing so, we can, you know, if we did this, you know, we could create a more efficient energy grid, create jobs, make electricity a public utility, stop destroying communities and the environment and finally be taking serious action on climate change. It's interesting, you know, as you say that, because um, I remember hearing that the um, transport industry is wanting to re-nationalise transport. Um, and this, this retaking of public utilities has started. I hope it gets stronger so that it's more accountable. If it's a public entity, it's much more accountable to the people than if it was privatized. So I hope this, this trend continues. But I want to just mention quickly, um, moving on from International Women's Day last week, um, I thought it was pertinent to mention that childcare workers were on strike on IWD. Yep. Day and it was um, more than a thousand early childhood educators walked on the job at 3:20 on on the 8th of March um, as a part of national protest against gender pay inequality and the lack of government and it's the first time they've taken such major action on a prominent day yeah, like and that. It's which by is union great. as well. So. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> so you, you you can talk about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, um, it was a, wonderful. So it was really good action, um, especially well. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make. Um, the the um the protests at the Brunswick. Yeah, you were going to go to it, weren't you? Yeah. Um, but um, it was a but yeah. It's um, I think it's a good evolving tr- um campaign. Um, big steps because yeah, the reality is um, early child care workers are extremely underpaid. I know. They paid like nineteen to twenty dollars. They pay hour. less than Aldi. And you know, <laughs> it is um, it is um, it is a feminist issue because uh because you know. The majority of people who work in this industry are women. That's right. And then there's also, it falls in line with, you know, this whole trend that, you know, caring work is not considered valuable. It's a vocation, mm-hmm. dear. Haven't you heard that? Um, <laughs> it's not It's not considered valuable. And, you know, you see this history in, for all the caring professions, whether it's teaching, hmm. nursing, 
um, which all main women dominated, women dominated. But they're always really, chronically underpaid. It's what really annoys me is, is the patriarch, the men who say, "How oh, well anyone can do it," and yet they demand higher. Parents demand qualified um, early education educators. You know, and they, they should be qualified. You know, in 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 uh, in the um, public sector, they need qualified people. And the family area is different. You know, elders can look after children. It's a different ball game altogether. It's a family environment, and they're entitled to their style of parenting. But if you're putting your child out there to be looked after by an institution, so to speak, you have to have qualified staff. In fact, um, the early quality standards have to be upheld. (laughs) Yes, and you know all about that. You know, you work in the industry and the qualification, the demand is high and they pay twenty to twenty five dollars now. What the hell? You know, what's going on here? Even Mm. even people who work in as I said, LD and calls get get similar wages. So why why even go to university and have a course where you can just walk into calls and get a job for similar wages and better hours? Because you you start at six AM, don't you? Oh, I start at seven, uh, but but my industry is a bit different. I work in outside school hours. Yeah, care. but still, it's early start for for a lot of childcare centres. Start at six a.m. Yep. because parents they drop the kids off, go to work, and they stay on until six p.m. because you're given that an hour after five p.m. to allow the parents time to come pick up the children. Mm. So it's very long hours of work. Mm. You know, and not that everybody works six to six, a twelve-hour shift. They some might. Oh, uh, usually they do if they're. Chronically, they're understaffed. Yeah, so you can imagine they'll be doing double shifts and everything, and it's just horrible. And and you know, it it was admirable that they did that. It was very yeah. good. It's, a, it's also a big step up from the action that they did last year, where they basically um, a group of early childcare workers just shamed themselves to Malcolm or some it was some Liberal MP's office. Um, but yeah, they've just they're going. It's a it's a revolving campaign that's becoming bigger, more militant. So. Um, we'll call, have to, um, Green, um, Left Weekly Radio and Freecia, we'll have to do it, potentially do an interview sometime with um, one of the organisers. We should. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, um, uh, there's an article here. Thousands of unionists attended protests around the country on March 9th in opposition to the federal government's new building code, the introduction of the ABCC. And it's funny, I, I um, read an article yesterday where a judge threw a case out that was brought against the CFMEU um, for two workers drinking a cup of coffee, or they're having cups of coffee, and, and the, a case was brought against them, and the judge was ropeable. It was really funny to, um, <laughs> to see them. The next programmers are waiting outside, so we'll just um, finish this up and um, say goodbye soon. But anyway, so the National um, CFMEU and um, Secretary said that General Dave Noon told the crowd at this rally that ABCC had sent a letter to the union threatening workers who walked off the job for the rallies with heavy fines. We have a right to to do a democratic assembly. And um, he said to the loud cheering crowd at the time when business profits have soared to a 15-year high. And it's clear that the government is uh, siding with the rich and the powerful to line their pockets with biggest profits. So this, this is an ongoing saga. We shall keep, um, keep an eye on this, this um, ABCC and how it's been implemented and how it's used by the bosses against workers. But the other thing about the, ABC, the CFME was interesting because they went out on a rally in support of um, the protest against the cut in penalty rates. And I was watching this uh, Channel 7 newsreader who was vitriolic in attacking the CFMEU in relation to having this protest and solidarity with the young people who work on Sundays who have lost the penalty rates. He said, well, none of
none of the CFMU workers work on Sundays. Why are they out protesting? So it just shows how the media supports this sort of action um, against the penalty, um, uh, sorry, against the, the, the solidarity actions by trade unions in support of young people who are losing penalty rates in their wages. Um, some people are losing like up to $100 a week, which is going to affect their pockets. But anyway, this, this battle is not finished yet. So we're going to wrap up in a minute. Jacob, do you want to um, say goodbye and we can um, yep. wrap up? Yeah, thanks. Um, thank you, listeners, for listening. And um, thank our guests um, for doing David White and Paul Adams for doing the interview. Fortunately, and sorry about Sonia. We'll, we'll catch up with us soon. Yep. Um, but yeah, you can just come. I'll just plug in the forum again. She'll be speaking this Tuesday yes. at the Visiting Centre for Seven Swanson Street, Level I Five. Was in the the multicultural hub. No, that's the that's the homeless forum. All right. So, no, uh, they're both there. No, no, that no. It's she. It's she speaking at the Resistance Centre. Okay, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I would just be playing the outro and stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.